Hello, and welcome back to Who Turned Out the Lights. My guest today is Eric Allen. And Mr. Allen, thank you for joining us again. Uh, so as I, we mentioned in our, or that, excuse me, as I said in our last conversation, uh, Mr. Allen has enjoyed a variety of vocations that I feel give him a good perspective from which to judge the issues that we're discussing today. And that's especially true with today's topic, which is crime and policing. Uh, first, Mr. Allen, you have, to say the least, a unique biography. I wanted to see if your varied experiences influence each other. So does your insight from the world of Catholic classical education inform the way you view the issue of crime and police? Wow, that is a good question. Um, I think it does in the sense that in within the world of Catholic liberal education, uh, something we often talk about is that we're not just engaged in data transfer, as if I've got this knowledge in my head and my job now is to transfer that knowledge to the heads of the students, right? Um, that's not what we're doing. Um, we certainly are helping students learn and grow in knowledge, but we're teaching whole human beings, right? The complete person. And so helping develop the, the children into um, uh, morally upright citizens into virtuous uh, disciples of Jesus Christ. Uh, this is really uh, at the, the center of what we do. So there's definitely a relationship between a virtuous citizenship and the need for and the role of law enforcement. So uh, I think that's at least one significant point of connection. Mm -hmm. And from the other way, does your experience in the nitty gritty of law enforcement in poor neighborhoods add a dose of reality to philosophical discussions that someone who has spent their whole life in academia might lack? Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it's quite one thing to, to sit in an office, uh, you know, or, or, or a classroom as a, a, an academic and philosophize about the ideal society and and the 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 causes of crime um, and to do that from an ideological perspective, whether it's Marxist or, or what have you, it's quite another thing to be out there on the street and, and to know these, uh, know, know these folks in person, right? Both, both the, the citizens who are upright as well as the ones who are uh, part of the kind of uh, criminal um, element, if you will. And then, you know, um, people who are kind of in between, you know, uh, maybe making a transition in their own life from, being an upright citizen toward engaging in criminal activity or vice versa. So yeah, when, when you actually know the people face-to-face -face, um, and it's sometimes more face-to-face, -face, right? Literally hands-on, then it makes a big difference. Yeah, I can imagine. I have a lot of respect for people who work, who are policemen because that would, cannot be an easy job. It is not. <laughs> yeah. All right, so let's get a little background on the topic of policing that has been roiling our country as of late. Mm -hmm. So with the protests going on, some have gone so far as to call to defund the police. Um, the argument goes something like this, that policing has a disparate impact on black communities and that the communities would be better served by replacing the police with other services that bring peace to these neighborhoods, services like counseling and drug rehabilitation. What's your take on defunding the police? Yes, well, I, I live 
near a municipality that has been strongly influenced by this movement. Um, and I actually worked as a law enforcement officer in that municipality as well for a couple of years. And uh, so let's kind of talk about what they, what they have right to begin with. Mm -hmm. um, it, it is true that uh, there's more going on in uh, criminal activity than just someone committing a criminal act. Mm -hmm. uh, very often there are uh, problems with substance abuse. Mm -hmm. There are problems with addiction. There are problems with mental health. Uh, in fact, when I was in law enforcement, um, I became convinced of two things. Uh, one was that had prohibition worked, <laughs> right? And, and I'm, I'm not in favor of prohibition, right? Um, I, I think drinking alcohol is, is part of freedom of conscience for, for everyone, you know, Christians included, as long as, you know, there's not sin involved. But had prohibition worked, had there not, uh, were alcohol not available, the crime rate, crime rate would be significantly lower. Hmm. Um, it, it's, it was incredible how many of our calls involved some kind of substance abuse, typically alcohol, but very often uh, prescription drugs or uh, other kinds of uh, narcotics. Uh, the second thing I became convinced of was that had mental health institutions still been in operation, that would also just in a dramatic way reduce the crime rate. Mm -hmm. So in North Carolina, several decades ago, mental health institutions were really scaled way, way, way down. And a lot of folks who had been uh, institutionalized were released into the public. And there really was not a mechanism to accommodate them and to take care of them and to help them make this transition successfully. And so as a police officer, if you took away all the folks that... Uh, had substance abuse, if you took away all the folks that had mental health issues, then you would have very, very little crime. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not advocating that we take all those people away. What I am saying is that folks who want to defund the police and want to emphasize more of a therapeutic approach are seeing something that's really there. Yeah, They are seeing a real need that, that has to be addressed and that law enforcement is not adequate to address. Um, it's not uncommon, even when I was in law enforcement, uh, there was the, uh, a movement gaining momentum to train law enforcement in methods of therapy. Hmm. And this is just not, this is just not the job of a police officer. Yeah. It's, it's kind of akin to what happens in education where teachers are expected not only to be good teachers, but to be therapists and to be, you know, all these yeah. other things, you know, to wear all these other hats. And police officers are just as human as anyone else and can only develop an expertise in so many levels of uh, so many different kinds of skill. So all that to say, those folks who, who are arguing for defunding police in order to provide more services to those who have problems with substance abuse or mental health issues, they are seeing a real need that we do need to address. Mm -hmm. Now, on the other hand, defunding the police is not the solution <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, because there still is criminal activity. And you've probably seen in the media, I don't have stats off the top of my head, but uh, you know, you're starting to see more and more of these municipalities that tried defunding the police to begin to refund them because they realized it wasn't working. Yeah. And it's just human nature that uh, there's going to be people breaking the law, 
doing things they shouldn't be doing. And it is, I think, an important public service. I do think it is an important responsibility of the state to provide that at least some level of protection uh, for the common good. Yeah. So like what I'm hearing is that it doesn't have to be an either or where we completely get rid of the police or nothing changes. So I totally agree with your saying it'd be perfect to bring counseling and drug rehabilitation back into these communities, but not necessarily get rid of the police. Is that what you're saying? Correct. Correct. And, and, and I think, you know, addressing the, the problem of substance abuse and mental health is, there's not a simple solution to that. Yeah. But there's mo- a lot of layers, a lot of causes to it. Uh, but yes, mm-hmm. to answer your question simply. Yeah. I, I, that's really a trend with most issues these days. There's no simple answer. And that's what people want. They want some perfect thing that will solve everyone's problems and leave no damages behind. But that's just mm-hmm. not really an option with a lot of issues these days. That's right. That's right. So, okay. Um, let's talk about a little of the Ferguson effect popularized by Heather McDonald, who argued that after protests, offers back, oh, excuse me, officers backed off proactive policing in minority neighborhoods, having been told that such discretionary enforcement was racially oppressive. And this is a quote, by the way. Uh, by early t- 2015, the resulting spike in shootings and homicides had become patent and would lead to an additional 2,000 Black homicide victims in 2015 and 2016, compared with 2014 numbers. Um, and opponents point to these studies that show no relationship between changes in police activity and crime rates. Um, are you familiar with these debates? And if so, do you have a position? Well, uh, I'm, I'm not as up to speed of it uh, with it as probably I, I should be. Uh, mm-hmm. I've been out of law enforcement now for a few years, so I'm not tracking with it uh, quite the way I should. Um, but I, I do know that even when I was in law enforcement, um, th- this idea of uh, you know police presence in minority neighborhoods being a form of oppression, that's not something that just came out of the blue with Ferguson, right? Uh, that is something that's kind of deeply embedded in, in the psyche of, uh, of America uh, thinking, American thinking about inner cities and minority neighborhoods. It's, it's got a long story to it. And, and the truth of the matter is there, there have been times in our history, in the history of policing in America, where uh, there have been abuses, mm-hmm. right? Um, and there is the occasion, occasional rogue officer who does go beyond what is ethical and, and what is good. And unfortunately, those get inflated to become, uh, by the general public, be assumed as the paradigm case of what it's all like, right? And uh, law enforcement is, in this respect, at least like any other profession, there are going to be people who find their way in that shouldn't be there. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, In my experience, law enforcement is really good at getting rid of those kind of uh, rogue officers, if you will. And and so I, I, I think that at least should not be a major concern. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you know, as, as an officer, you know, and I did spend a lot of time in minority neighborhoods. I did spend a lot of time in uh, public housing projects and sometimes the residents, and these would be particularly people that were engaged in criminal activities, such as street corner drug dealing and things like this. Uh, they would harass us in the sense verbally harass us and say, what are you doing here? Why aren't you over on this street? Or why aren't you in this neighborhood? And, and the response was always, well, 
there's nobody selling drugs on that street. <laughs> um, there, there's, there's not the rate of domestic violence in that neighborhood that is here. Uh, there's not the rate of theft in that neighborhood that is here. So we have to go where you know, the, the greater uh, proportion of criminal activity is taking place. Um, I'm not sure if that's helpful, but uh, that's, right. that's some of the thoughts that come to mind. Mm -hmm. So um, I'd like to get your take now on two proposed solutions. The mm -hmm. first is to end qualified immunity. And for people who are listening who don't know what qualified immunity is, it's a judicial doctrine that shields public officials, such as police officers, from liability when they break the law um, in line of duty, of course. Uh, so Cato's project on criminal justice chose to make the elimination of qualified immunity one of its top priorities nearly three years ago for the simple reason that civil society is impossible without a well-functioning criminal justice system. Um, so again, like I said, it's been suggested that the Supreme Court Congress um, could end qualified immunity. And um, it was their argument that the police could still enforce the law. It's just if they violate the law in doing so, they will be held accountable. What's your take on that? Well, I think the important term in that is, is qualified immunity, right? It's not absolute immunity. Mm -hmm. um, so law enforcement officers don't have the freedom just to, to break the law, either civil law or criminal law, uh, kind of willy-nilly and face no consequences, right? Yeah. Um, what it does do is it, it sets up um, kind of a protection for those in law enforcement, recognizing that the, the apprehension of criminals uh, very often is going to involve resistance by the criminal, mm -hmm. right? And to overcome resistance often requires violence. Mm -hmm. You often have to stop violence with violence, with a greater level of violence. And law enforcement officers are trained in what's called the, um, the use of force continuum. Mm -hmm. And this is uh, basically simply put, um, it's sort of the, the amount of force that is appropriate for a given situation. Uh, anytime a law enforcement officer just shows up, right? There's a certain use of force there just by his or her presence, you know, the badge and the firearm and the uniform and what they represent. The greatest uh, um, extent of use of force would be deadly force. Mm -hmm. And then in between those two extremes are all kinds of intermediate steps that are at our disposal in trying to apprehend a criminal or to stop a, a violent act. Mm -hmm. So what qualified immunity does is it recognizes that uh, police officers are having to make split second decisions mm -hmm. uh, where they don't know all the facts, where they don't have the bird's eye view of everything that's going on, where they cannot predict the future. Uh, we can't just sort of stop everything and, and do a mental health uh, record history check yeah. on this you know, uh, person or take mm -hmm. a blood test to see if they're under the influence. We have to deal with the fact that they are a threat right now. Mm -hmm. And so qualified immunity uh, just gives the police officer the freedom to do his job without having to second guess himself at every step, whether or not he's gonna be sued or end up in a jail cell. Mm -hmm. So to get rid of qualified immunity is, is not a good idea. Mm -hmm. um, when I was in law enforcement, we still, we had qualified immunity, but because of the way, because of the way the trends were going in society, there were many times where I can, I can tell you honestly that, that I and my fellow officers uh, held back from really what we should have done out of fear that we would either be disciplined within the department or that we would be sued 
or even worse, that we would be given a criminal charge. Mm -hmm. um, and so it really, and, and the worst part about that is that if you're a police officer and you're in a dangerous situation and you're second guessing yourself, you're facing an opponent who is not second guessing himself, right? Who's not worried about getting sued. Who's not worried about losing his job, yeah. right? Who just, for whatever reason, wants to do violence or wants to escape apprehension. And so when you have someone there, a police officer who is debating whether or not, oh, is this going to get me in trouble? Am I going to get sued if I do this? Well, now the police officer's life is in much greater danger. And whatever the initial threat was now has the potential to escalate even worse. Mm -hmm. So qualified immunity is really a safety net. And certainly, um, you know, police officers and use of force incidents are thoroughly investigated. And, and we do need a check and balance. We do need an accountability system. It's not a lack of accountability. It is just kind of a little safety net there. Mm -hmm. So another um, proposed solution was replacing police with like private security. So um, uh, private businesses such as clubs or bars, um, they hire um, bouncers to keep the drunk customers peaceful, but do so with a minimum of force and the profit motive incentivizes them to accomplish both of these goals with keeping everyone as happy as possible without anyone getting hurt. So if we were to employ this approach on a wider scale, we would have privately funded police who would be beholden to their customers. So this isn't a defund the police approach we'd still have the police. They would just be working for the consumers of protection. The only difference would be the funding mechanism. So replacing taxation, which they have no choice in, but the price system would ensure that the police they employ were responsive to their desires. So people could say if they didn't want police, they would just could choose not to put their money towards that. What do you think of that approach? Yeah, that's really interesting. I'm going to kind of have a both and answer to that. Mm -hmm. um, I, I do think publicly funded police, I, I think that is a legitimate role of the state. Mm -hmm. um, I, I do think it serves the common good. And uh, so I do think there is a place for it. And, and taxation is, um, you know, the only way I'm aware of that you could mm -hmm. fund that and support yeah. that. So I think um, that that needs to stay in place. Um, on the other hand, I think an increase in private security and private police, if you want to call it that, is a good thing. Uh, you know, as, as a police officer, um, you know, we were called first responders, right? And, you know, I used to tell people kind of jokingly, but really half serious that police officers are really not first responders. They're the last responders, <laughs> right? Because by the time we get called, whatever bad thing is going to happen is already in progress, right? Mm -hmm. Somebody else already knows about it. And that's the reason we get called. So we're very often the last on the scene and are doing more investigation and cleanup than we are actually stopping something bad that's in progress. Mm -hmm. Of course, there are, you know, numerous exceptions to that. But in general, uh, law enforcement is the last one on the scene, not the first. Uh, private security, on the other hand, really would be first responders because they would be on site all the time. Right. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think the idea of private security is uh, is a good idea. But I think we do need to keep the public sector law enforcement in place uh, simply because there are private citizens, neighborhoods, 
businesses that simply would not have the resources to fund their own private security. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of liability involved in security because uh, inevitably there's the possibility of a use of force, right? And even the extreme use of force of deadly force. So to hire private security to do that, there's going to have to be a lot of insurance coverage. And you know, you're going to have to have a lot of background checks and a lot of training. All that takes a huge amount of money. And so a lot of private citizens, uh, both in the business world and just neighborhoods, would not have the means to fund their own police force. So I think I think both together would be the ideal scenario. Mm-hmm. What about body cameras? Could they provide a safeguard against proper improper actions or improper um, allegations? For law enforcement officers wearing body cams? Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm actually against body cams. And mm-hmm. I know that's a pretty controversial thing to say in, in today's uh, political environment. Um, a body camera, so, so I, I think there's a kind of a deception that goes on. And I think it has to do with the fact that we do live in a digital age. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so many uh, people spend so much time in front of a screen and there's a blurring in perception between what is real and what is not. Mm-hmm. And that what is captured on a camera, we, we are so used to seeing video that we can easily make the assumption that we're seeing what really happened, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But really all we're seeing is one visual, maybe uh, audio perspective of an event. Mm-hmm. We're, we're, we're not seeing it from 360 degrees. We're not seeing the history that led up to that event. We're not seeing inside the hearts and minds of the people involved in mm-hmm. that event, yeah. right? And so I think a body cam is very deceptive because it gives the impression that you're seeing what really happened when what really happened is so much more complicated than what can be captured by a body cam. Yeah. So uh, in my experience, and we did, we were required about halfway through my career, we did have to start wearing body cams. In my experience with them, uh, there were numerous occasions where uh, the body cam gave one impression, but what really was going on was something different. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you put that video out there in the public media and people are going to jump to conclusions and it's just really hard to walk that back. So, so I'm against body cams um, actually. Oh yeah. That's understandable. Do you think there's really any good solution that would have like the best of both worlds? Would it kind of be with the private police along with um, the public police? Do you think would that be the most beneficial solution for both parties? I, I do. And I, and I think, you know, like we, we spoke earlier about the problem, say, with substance abuse or mental health. Um, this, this really goes much deeper than just a public safety issue. Mm-hmm. It, it really gets down to culturally, where are we as a country? Mm-hmm. And, and I would go even so far as to say, uh, you know, spiritually, where are we as a country? And I think this is where, you know, Catholic education that I work in, other, other forms of, of Christian education are so, so important um, because the best thing, and the founding fathers understood this, in order to have a successful republic, you have to have a virtuous citizenry. Yeah. And, and I think we're, 
we're reaping in spades generations now of departure from the, the influence of Christianity in our society. So, so yes, public and private uh, security, I think, is, is a great way to go. But we need to be raising our children, right, yes. to know and love and serve mm-hmm. the Lord and to love their neighbors. And apart from that, it's, it's hard to see really where this is going to end. Mm-hmm. And like, like you mentioned, and you were just saying, the founding fathers, even the ones who weren't necessarily Christians, or, deist, or some of them, I think there was one or two who were atheists. Mm-hmm. Um, they still agreed that faith was a necessary thing to have in the country. Yes. Yes. So, yeah. All right. Well, that's, uh, thank you so much for coming back, Mr. Allen, and helping us learn about this incredibly important topic today. You're welcome.